It's Tuesday, January 30th. They could have shot it down, so why didn't they? We start here. The drone strike that killed three American service members might have been a case of mistaken identity. It was essentially a lucky shot. Now, could a deadly mistake alter our response to Iran? He wanted to expose illustrious billionaires, so he got a job handling IRS documents. The hope and expectation of getting access to Donald Trump's tax returns. Now, the man who leaked Donald Trump's tax returns is going to prison, and she was convicted of killing a man. They're gonna give me the gun, and I'm a couple of us. But how much does it change her case when you know he was also her abuser? From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. The U.S. entered a new phase in its Mideast involvement this weekend, because now instead of just being a country supporting the Israeli military or a country keeping watch on shipping routes, we're now a country whose troops have been killed as part of this conflict. The president and I will not tolerate attack on U.S. forces, and we will take all necessary actions to defend the U.S. and our troops. Yesterday, Pentagon officials identified the victims who had been killed by a drone strike at a small outpost in Jordan. 46-year-old Sergeant William Rivers, a 13-year veteran, 23-year-old specialist Brianna Moffat, and 24-year-old specialist Kennedy Sanders. It's a little corner of Jordan right next to Iraq and Syria, which is where these Iranian-backed attackers would have come from. But a lot of questions remain. Like, how did this happen? And what is the U.S. going to do in response? Well, yesterday, we got some answers to both of those questions. Let's bring in Colonel Stephen Ganyard, former Marine fighter pilot, then a State Department official. Now he's an ABC News contributor. Colonel Ganyard, what do we know about these deaths and how this went down? Well, the working theory in the Pentagon right now, Brad, is that there was a U.S. drone that was on its way back to this base and that those folks on the base where the attack occurred mistook the incoming drone that was the attack drone from whichever militia uh, sent it for the U.S. drone. So in other words, they made a mistake by misconstruing two drones that were inbound to the base. It did impact in um, where living quarters are, and I believe so. I believe it was uh, pretty early morning, so people were actually in their beds when the drone impacted. It was Um, essentially a lucky shot. Whatever militia, whatever Iranian surrogate launched this attack. And of course, Central Command is looking into what can be done when it comes to our air defenses and looking into this incident. It should have been brought down. They had the means to bring it down. But they just got the folks on the base, the U.S. base, got confused and didn't see that it was an Iranian drone and not one of their own coming back into the base. How does that happen? Like, how how difficult is it to tell, I guess, drones from these other countries apart? Well, it it sort of depends. You know, um, you know, if when you fly an airplane, an airplane has a thing called a transponder and there's a four digit code that gets sent out to radar so you can identify that airplane and everything about it. These little drones don't have transponders. And so Mm -hmm. if you're lucky enough to have radar that can detect these very low radar cross section little drones, these little plastic drones, you still don't know exactly who it is. You think, well, I sent somebody out there. One of my colleagues is is running a drone uh, surveillance mission. And I think he's coming back this way with that drone. But sometimes maybe there's not exact communication between the folks who are running the defense of the base and the folks who are out actually running sort of a surveillance mission with with a, with a U.S. drone. And so it could have been communication. Uh, we know it was the middle of the night. It could have been a problem with fatigue, uh, lack of attention, 
Uh, it's not hard to see how human error could come into play here, but also the difficulty of actually detecting drones. And when you're on a very remote base, the kinds of capabilities that you have might be very different than what you would have on a big base. Yeah, and can speaking of how remote this place is, I mean, when you see other drone footage of this of this outpost, it's it's in the middle of nowhere, right? Can you just help us understand why U.S. military are at this spot in this part of Jordan, of all places? Right. So it all comes back, as most of these things do, to Iran. Iran wants to supply its surrogate, Hezbollah, in Lebanon. So how do you get to Lebanon? How do you get supplies? How do you get military supplies? Easiest way is to do it over land. So where this base is, is just off the old highway between Baghdad and Damascus. And so that's the clear overland route to get arms, to get shipments to Hezbollah through Iraq into Syria, where they can then be transported over the mountains and into Lebanon, which is where Hezbollah is. So the U.S. set up these bases way out in the middle of nowhere and this god-awful flat terrain where you can't see anything except desert in order to block that, that ability of Iran to resupply Hezbollah over land. So that's why this is an irritant to Iran. It, this is why it's an irritant to the Iranian proxies in both Iraq and Syria, and mm. it's why the bases have been under attack. We are not looking for a war with Iran. We are not seeking a conflict with the regime. And so that all brings us, I guess, to what the U.S. is going to do. Because the White House repeatedly says, we don't want to see this conflict get bigger. Well, we're not looking to escalate here. This attack over the weekend was escalatory. Make no mistake about it. And it requires a response. Make no mistake about that. But they've also vowed, President Biden has vowed a strong response to the attack. Yesterday, we saw an attack on the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, one of their bases in Syria. I, for a second, I was like, is that us? Iran says they think that was Israel because this is something they've done before. But I mean, what is the U.S response going to be? Is it something like that? Is it, do you hit Iran? I mean, what do you do? The the White House is in a real bind here because they keep saying, we know it's Iran. We know it's Iran. We're going to hold them accountable. But then apparently the, the White House does not want to go in and directly attack Iran. So that leaves the U.S. with options that only involved attacking the Iranian proxies, the Houthis, the uh, Hezbollah, and Hamas. So that means that they're going to have to look for uh, small outposts of, of militias within Syria and within uh, within Iraq, uh, and they'll have to go after you know small logistics bases, but there really aren't any big targets that are going to make a difference. And remember, all of this is by proxy. So Iran is off there saying, not us, not us, we didn't do it, all the while their proxies are doing their dirty work for them. Does this also just draw attention, Colonel Ganyar, to how vulnerable our troops are overseas, even when we're trying to consider ourselves like we're the outsiders, we're the observers, we're just kind of helping out. And yet, like, are we more vulnerable there than we even thought? What this really points out, Brad, is how vulnerable, powerful, technologically capable militaries, especially the U.S., are to the drone threat. The Houthis have launched nearly three dozen attacks on commercial and Navy ships since October. Look at the Houthis taking small little drones, going out and attacking uh, ships way out in the Red Sea. So the ability for countries who cannot afford big sophisticated weapons, but can afford, say, a $20,000 drone, now have the ability to influence the battlefield against the U.S. in particular in ways that they never had before. Think about what you have, a $20,000 drone, and in the Red Sea, the U.S. is using $2 million missiles to bring down these little drones. So that's an asymmetry that the U.S. cannot afford for long. There are no good answers right now, and the U.S. military is scrambling because they understand how vulnerable they are to this new type of warfare. All right, Colonel Stephen Gander, thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. 
next up on Start Here, the IRS wasn't out to get him, but this guy apparently was. A judge throws the book at the guy who leaked Donald Trump's taxes after the break. We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor, you know the type, like I've had this person before, that doesn't actually listen to you or who seems just in a rush to end your appointment that you spent months making. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. So, no compromises here, because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free, then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. You remember four years ago, in the lead up to the 2020 presidential election, there was a big September surprise. After years of Donald Trump refusing to share his tax returns with the public, someone leaked them anyway bombshell report about the president's taxes with just 36 days until the election. The New York Times saying President Trump paid just $750. The New York Times got access to a trove of Trump tax documents. So did the investigative outlet ProPublica. Well, it turned out this was the work of a rogue IRS contractor. And yesterday, he was sentenced to five years in prison. ABC's national correspondent Stephen Portnoy is here. Stephen, I remember wondering if this was the work at someone at the IRS. And then I feel like a lot of people didn't know the rest of the story. Who was it? This is the case, Brad, of a man named Charles Littlejohn, a 38-year-old who over the years worked on and off, not for the IRS itself, but for a major consulting firm called Booz Allen Hamilton that performed services for the IRS. Now, federal prosecutors say in his various roles for Booz Allen over the years, Charles Littlejohn came to know that in working for that firm, he would have access to vast amounts of taxpayer data tax returns, tax information, all of it unmasked, to use that government phrase. Mm. They say he also received training on the consequences of stealing or misusing this protected taxpayer information. And this is where the story gets really interesting, Brad, because prosecutors alleged that Charles Littlejohn rejoined Booz Allen Hamilton in 2017, and this is the quote from court documents, 
with the hope and expectation of getting access to Donald Trump's tax returns. Sometime in late 2018, prosecutors say Charles Littlejohn began accessing Trump's tax returns. He didn't just search and type in T-R-U-M-P. He did it in a way that was aimed at avoiding detection. And a few months later, prosecutors say in 2019, Charles Littlejohn contacted the New York Times. And it was in the fall of 2020, just about six weeks before the election, that the newspaper printed the story under a blockbuster headline, and it was major news. And he paid just $750 in federal income taxes in 2016 and 2017. And no federal income taxes at all in 10 different years, George. Yes. There were huge spillover stories all across radio, television, the web, Twitter, everywhere. In the end, Donald Trump kind of sort of boasted about it because what he said was, all this shows is how crafty I am at, you know, paying the, the, the least amount of taxes I owe. Like every other private person, unless they're stupid, they go through the laws and that's what it is. But I'll say, Brad, this wasn't the end of the story because as the New York Times was printing the details from Donald Trump's tax returns, prosecutors say Charles Littlejohn kept digging in the IRS database and that he went about stealing the private tax information of thousands of America's wealthiest people. This includes Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and many, many others, many of whom avoided paying income taxes over the years, taking advantage of a variety of legal tax breaks and loopholes that are well known to the wealthy, but unavailable to those of us who earn wages and have taxes deducted from our paychecks. And just as the New York Times was printing this blockbuster headline about Donald Trump, prosecutors say Little John went to ProPublica, that nonprofit news outlet, and they started running stories in 2021 on the taxes paid or unpaid by the wealthiest 0.001%. Wow. Okay. And so then the DOJ was investigating him. They eventually arrest him. He cops to it and strikes this plea deal. And five years is no joke, Stephen, but it's also just one count that he was charged with. The judge almost seemed confused about why prosecutors weren't throwing the book at him more. Prosecutors asked for the maximum penalty, and not just prosecutors, but also lawmakers. Rick Scott, the Republican senator from Florida, he was invited to give a victim impact statement, and he called the plea arrangement with prosecutors and Charles Littlejohn the plea deal of the century. As she issued her sentence, Judge Ana Reyes said, it can't be open season on elected officials. She even compared what this man did in stealing Trump's tax returns to threats made by some of the January 6th defendants that she's sentenced in her courtroom. And because he targeted a sitting president, the judge called Charles Littlejohn's crime an attack on our constitutional democracy. She aimed to set also a deterrent, a signal to anyone else who might work for this accounting firm or the IRS or any other agency that they'd better be especially careful to follow those instructions about taking care of private information. Well, and Steve, you mentioned like the deterrent idea, which is interesting because this seems so damaging, not just because there could be some rogue IRS contractor out there like trying to take people's private information that he wants to expose. It's that Donald Trump has campaigned on the idea that there is a deep state of bureaucrats out there who want to get him. Does this add legitimacy to that complaint? Well, conservatives have viewed 
the Internal Revenue Service as a, one giant boogeyman for ages. Mm -hmm. And the idea that after what happened about a decade ago when there was an accusation in the Obama administration that the IRS was specifically targeting conservative-leaning outlets for audits, the idea that the IRS might leak not just Donald Trump's information, but information about the wealthiest Americans and how they use, or in the mind, I guess, of those who believe it, misuse or abuse the tax system. Uh, the idea is that uh, conservatives are, are deeply distrustful of the IRS and want to go after its funding. I think it's important, though, to reiterate the idea that it's really faith and confidence in the government right. that's on the line here. Because it's individuals who serve in these roles, who are entrusted with this information, who are charged with keeping it secret. The law requires it to be secret and private. There are only a certain number of instances where taxpayer information can become public, and it's very narrow. It involves lawmakers and whistleblowers going in and carefully reviewing just to make sure the law is being carefully followed. Right. It almost sounds like the story of a guy who was disappointed there was no deep state. So he was trying to go outside the law to make a point. He gets busted for doing so. Even that, though, just profoundly potentially damaging for how Americans see government. Uh, Stephen Portnoy in Washington. Thank you. You bet, Brett. Earlier this month, a woman named Nikki Adamondo got out of prison on parole. She had been convicted of murdering her domestic partner, the father of her children, which seemed like a pretty open and shut case considering she admitted doing it. What made her case different, though, was that for years, she had been documenting how he abused her. And so now, after serving just seven out of her 19-year sentence, the question is once again being raised, how should we treat domestic abuse survivors when they attack their abusers. ABC's Juju Chang has been following this case for years. In fact, she'd spoken to Nikki Adamondo in prison, and last night on Nightline, she heard from the people who are also affected by this type of tragedy, the family members. I should warn you, there are some graphic depictions here of domestic violence. Um, Juju, thanks for being with us. Nikki Adamondo had originally kind of presented this as a type of self-defense, right? Why did that not fly? Absolutely. It wasn't technically a self-defense, but it was on that night, Nikki described a dynamic of either kill or be killed in that moment. She had documented years of extreme physical violence, both physical and sexual violence. She was coming in with more and more injuries, marks on her wrists, strangulation marks on her neck. Social workers saw, law enforcement saw, and there were videos. And yet that night, Nikki testified that her partner, Chris Grover, threatened her with a gun and said, I'm going to kill you, and then I'm going to kill myself, and the kids will have no one. He, like, flinched and dropped it and then turned back over to me and said, you don't have it in you if you're going to give me the gun and I'll make up both of us. And she says they fought over the gun and eventually she killed him. It's no longer in dispute whether or not he abused her because all of the years of documentation have been entered into the public record. But the jury simply said she was still guilty of second-degree murder. The narrative was, well, nobody has this much documentation. You must have plotted this for years and years with this goal in mind. Um, and that's simply just not true. It feels like for victims, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. They felt one of the jurors said publicly that she could have just walked away. But many advocates of domestic violence say that that is an old-style view of looking at survivors of domestic violence. It's very hard for people to see somebody as a victim if they used deadly force. This is a whole class of women and sometimes men who are known as criminalized survivors. 
those who act out against their abusers. It's particularly hard for our legal system, which is so black and white and which demands perfect innocence or total guilt. <laughs> After nearly seven years behind bars, Nikki walked out on a cold January day into the arms of her young kids, Ben and Faye, who had spent much of the last seven years without her. <laughs> she was surrounded by supporters. They were hugging. There was not a dry eye, tears flowing, both of joy and sadness. It was the end of a chapter, but in many ways it was the beginning of not just her healing, but her advocacy on behalf of other criminalized survivors. Well, and, and so why did she get out this January, though, Juju? Like, if prosecutors and judges were all agreeing, yeah, like, this was terrible what happened to you, but you still got to do this much time, why didn't she? The appeals court brought into consideration a new law in New York State called the Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act. What that does is shorten the sentence of survivors who can prove that abuse was a contributing factor to the crime. It's not that they don't deserve any punishment. It's that they need to have the domestic violence brought into consideration when it comes to sentencing. It felt surreal. It felt a little out of body. It felt like I had dreamed it, and it was like I might wake up from it. And we spoke to Michelle Horton, who is Nikki's sister and has been her rock through it all. And she's just written a book called Dear Sister, chronicling the years um, and the toll that it takes, the very human toll that it takes on the family members. They have internally suffered for years knowing that their mom should be with them and can't be. Nikki had two young children at the time, two and four years old, mm. Faye and Ben, and they spent years visiting their mother in prison. And the toll that it takes on somebody like Michelle, who suddenly has to take in her niece and nephew, who then has to fight the legal system, who has to mount a legal defense, these are the types of challenges that people who are, are trying to support criminalized survivors of domestic violence go through. What are people around Chris Grover saying, you know, as, as, as Nikki Adamano gets out? Well, Chris Grover's mom told ABC News after Nikki's release that she doesn't have much to comment on because everyone is pro-Nikki and no one knows about the truth, she said. But I don't have more to say because I love my grandkids and I get to see my grandkids and I'm very grateful for that. They are my world. In retrospect, there are a lot of people who say they never saw a thing, but there are also a lot of people who say we saw her bruised. We saw her increasingly injured, and we didn't know what to do. Chris Grover was known around town as a very nice guy. He was a popular gymnastics coach, and many of the parents defended him, saying things like, well, he could not have abused somebody so horribly. Nikki said time and time again, no one will believe me. Everyone loves Chris. But a lot of domestic violence advocates say that this is not an uncommon dynamic, that somebody who appears one way in public can be very different in private. I think that's one of the tropes around domestic violence. The other is this idea that why didn't she leave? Well, the truth is domestic violence experts know that the minute somebody who is being abused threatens to leave their abuser, it gets far more dangerous. They're far more likely to die, Brad, in that situation. So Nikki says it was the same way. She remained silent and was terrified that if she spoke out, if she tried to leave, that he would kill her. And so what happens now, now that she's out of prison? 
Well, she continues to fight for a pardon. She has to live by the rules of formerly incarcerated people, which means there are certain places she can't live. There are certain places she can't work. There are you know, times that she has to serve for parole. But the biggest thing now for her healing, I think, is, is what she and her sister Michelle have told me is their mission. With the book and with the story, all I can really hope is that they feel seen and that they're not alone. What I want is liberation across the board. I want all of them free. To raise awareness for other survivors of domestic violence, the so-called criminalized survivors who, here's one startling stat, 67% of women behind bars uh, who've killed someone they know have killed someone who has abused them. And so this is a, a chronic issue that affects so many women behind bars. And it's something that Nikki and her sister Michelle are really trying to bring to light. All right. Uh, Juju Chang from Nightline, thank you so much. My pleasure, Brett. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, a mystery in Florida is all about that bass. One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. Have you ever lived with a roommate or a neighbor who you could hear through the wall, like, you know, doing everything? Well, welcome to what it's like for everyone in this neighborhood. I feel like I'm living my best Nancy Drew life right now. This is Sarah Healy, who lives in Tampa, Florida. She's one of thousands of residents who noticed this kind of weird thumping sound coming from, well, no one could quite tell. Other people in the mom group have described it as rattling their windows. Um, and waking up their family members, keeping them from falling asleep. For years, they've been trying to figure this out. It's almost less of a noise than the recurring bass pulse, maybe like an uns uns from a club. It seemed especially intense near the water, so they thought maybe it's a party boat or a top-secret military test at the Air Force base nearby. Healy got so desperate, she put out a TikTok begging anyone anywhere for answers. Do you hear it? Are you one of the thousands of South Tampa residents that's heard this mysterious noise that seems to be coming from everywhere and nowhere all at once. Well, now a marine scientist says it's probably fish getting busy. This is the sound often produced by black drumfish during mating season. A local marine scientist named James Lacasio has recorded several samples like this in recent years. A local fishing charter company caught one on tape that was making this noise. That's the sound of one fish. Now imagine a school of thousands. They used to call it the Punta Gorda growl in the 1970s. So down there, it's been going on or known about for a long time. Healy and her neighbors put together a GoFundMe to hire Lacasio to install underwater microphones and test South Tampa Bay to finally settle this once and for all. Yesterday, they reached their goal. But what would it accomplish? If it is frisky fish, can't really tell them to knock it off. Healy says at least she'll know, even if she doesn't appreciate it. It feels like a fun um, adventure that I can um, really get behind just to help the community and, and further science and 
maybe learn something in the process. Mating season for these fish usually runs between January and April, so the experiment has to happen soon. Otherwise, residents will have to go to their backup plan, asking the fish to leave a scrunchie on the doorknob next winter. Yeah, the window of opportunity is closing. All right, Brad, just reel it in. More on all these stories at abcnews.com or the ABC News app. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow.